You're listening to City Church. God bless you. Good morning. Welcome to church. You excited to be at church this morning? Good. I hope so. If you're new here, welcome. My name is Justin, lead pastor here at City Church. We are having a lot of fun. I do have a number of um, announcements for you today. We try to keep our announcements to a minimum on Sunday just because there's a lot going on, but today happens to be a very announcement-heavy day, so if you're new to City Church, we're just throw a lot at you right now, and if you've been around for a while, um, we're just trying to keep you up to date on everything that's going on. Uh, when you walked in, you received a welcome card. That's just our way of staying in touch with you. If you're new to City Church, take a minute and fill that out. We'll receive an offering in just a couple minutes. The welcome card always gets people upset. It's just part of the deal. Um, we'll receive an offering in a couple minutes, and uh, you can drop that little welcome card in there. So if you've um, just recently turned your life over to Jesus, if you want to have a prayer request, you want us to pray for you, if um, you need to be baptized, you want to be, whatever's going on in your life, or if you just want to say hi and you're a first-time guest, check that off. We'd love to just be praying for you, stay in touch with you, so you can take a minute and fill that out and tear that little section off and drop it in the <clears throat> basket as it goes around in a couple minutes. Um, also, you notice that there's an offering envelope in there if you'd like to give. Um, that would be a blessing to this church, this community. If you're new to City Church, uh, I encourage you, don't give. Just be blessed today. Uh, if you're a consistent attender of City Church, I encourage you to give like crazy, all right? All right, so that's good. Um, really excited. Some of you guys know the passion of our community is to see this area transformed by Jesus to see all of New England reached with God's love and God's grace. And so there's a way know, hopefully you do, that um, City Church has another location that meets for two services every Sunday, 9 and 11, in Bridgeport. And if you've never been there, you should go visit our Bridgeport location sometime soon. But we also have, uh, we're starting a location, a church location in Meriden. And so Meriden, Connecticut, we're really excited about that. And uh, three or four of you are as well. That's great. And, um, and so that's going to be starting October 5th, okay? Sunday, October 5th, we'll be starting weekly services, 10 a.m., in Meriden. But uh, before then, we're doing a couple of kind of preview services or pre-launch services, what we call them. So the first pre-launch service is tonight. And so um, if you have plans, cancel them, all right? Whatever you're doing, come with us, uh, 6 p.m. All the information's online at rcitychurch.org, but 6 p.m. Washington Middle School in Meriden. Um, I just have a passionate uh, word that God put on my heart to share tonight. Really excited about that. And so uh, 6 p.m. tonight, Washington Middle School, come support. Even if you're never going to go to the Meriden location again, come and just support us as we start it off and launch it. It'd be a great uh, way to, uh, to just be behind what's going on in this church. And that's a great way to spend your evening. I mean, you know, who else? You know, just spend it worshiping Jesus, right? Can't get any better than that. Also, um, we've been raising funds for this Meriden launch. So exciting how God's moving here. Um, it takes about $80,000 to launch a new church location. And so, um, so far, we have uh, raised about uh, $55,000. Okay, and so there's about $25,000-ish left that we want to raise in the next four or five weeks. And so um, I encourage you, get on board with that, okay? If you want to give above and beyond, I know Christy and I will be giving above and beyond our normal giving to the Meriden launch, and I encourage you to consider doing the same thing. If we all give above and beyond, um, we'll be able to do this and really be able to do it well. And so uh, that's what that yellow envelope is for. If you want to give specifically to the Meriden location, I encourage you, um, go ahead and put whatever uh, God puts on your heart there, and then add two more zeros and put it in the, the uh, envelope. All right, so that's, why did you laugh? That was not a joke. That was, 
Um, also, this coming Saturday, a lot going on, like I said, uh, the Bijou Theaters, where we meet in Bridgeport, will be holding a night of worship at the Bijou Theater this coming Saturday at 7 p.m., okay? And so 7 p.m., Bijou Theater, downtown Bridgeport, it's going to be awesome. A couple hours of just seeking God, worshiping him. Uh, last uh, month, we did a, uh, a night of worship, and it was incredible. People were healed. Uh, God really moved. People gave their lives to Christ. It was really, really awesome. So I encourage you to be a part of that as well. All right, a couple more things. Um, you guys know if you've been around City Church for any length of time, in the fall, we start up our community groups again. Very excited. We'll have more community groups running this fall than we ever have before. Every night of the week, we'll be having groups in homes, worshiping Jesus, studying the scripture, applying what we're learning as a church. That will begin on September 14th. Signups will start, okay? But right now, what we're doing is just recruiting anyone interested in hosting a group. Now, to host a group, you don't have to do a Bible study. You don't have to lead. You don't have to be prepared. That's what the community group leader does. The community group host opens up their home, and uh, really just provides a space for the meeting to happen, all right? And so what we do is we collect as many community group host uh, people that are open to that, and then we try to pair them with our community group leaders. So you may not uh, actually host a group if you fill this out, but if you're interested in that, say, yeah, I'd like more information about that, go ahead and fill out the little card in your welcome guide that says, I'm, more, I'm interested in more information about a community group host, and, uh, and we'll send you some info, get in contact with you, and maybe it'll be a fit for this fall. We don't know, but we'd love your information and see if we can uh, make a match with some community group leaders that need a home. So you can fill that out and drop it in the offering as well. Okay, now... What we've seen over the last two years, um, God's done a profound work at City Church. You guys know, some of you know, that we're coming into year three. September 14th is our three-year anniversary as a church. It's our birthday. And so really excited about that. And every year so far, as we've started the church these last two years, in the fall, in about a four-month time period, the actual size of the church both years has doubled, okay? And so it's an explosive time in the church world. For whatever reason, people are just coming to Jesus around that time. And so um, we're really expecting God to do something outrageous. You know, the larger we grow as a community, the more crazy it is to believe that you're going to double. When you're 10 people, it's like, hey, we doubled. I brought my family, you know? But, but when, um, when there's hundreds of people to believe that God's going to continue to see massive increase in our heart is to reach all these cities with the gospel simultaneously. And so we're starting a campaign and launching a church uh, series, a teaching series on September 14th called I Found Joy. I Found Joy. And it's just a time where we're going to be focusing on and meditating on the truth that God gives the greatest joy that human beings can ever experience in this life. We'll be teaching on that. And so that starts the 14th. There's some information in the, uh, at the welcome table about I Found Joy. You can start praying and considering who can I invite to church around that time. I'll be giving you more information next week. But um, I want just to get in your mind that uh, this fall, God's going to do something really profound. I want to encourage you to be a part of it. And begin believing for your family members, for friends, for fellow students, for uh, fellow co-workers that don't know Christ to meet Jesus and his love. All right? And so uh, that's it. We're going to receive the offering. Ushers, if you guys want to get ready. Amen. Yes, amen. You guys blessed last week when we started this series, The History of Grace. I feel like God did a really good work here. And uh, this week we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11, stay with the story. We talked about last week how Abraham and God made a covenant and God decided to build a covenant 
based upon unmerited favor, an agreement with humanity based upon unmerited favor. And what we're gonna do over this week and next week is we're just gonna chronicle some of that story really so that we can see ourselves in it. And so the secret of scripture is not to memorize tales, you know, like to know, you know, whose brother Mephibosheth was, like that doesn't help. The, the secret of scripture is to realize that God has recorded these particular stories on purpose so that you could see not just the story, but that, so that you could see yourself. Right? So Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to start in the New Living Translation of the Bible. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. I just want to read this one verse, and we're going to basically hang around this verse and its context for the rest of the morning. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of, his son, oh, each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was dead, when he was old and dying, not dead yet, sorry, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. The, uh, the title for today's sermon is uh, The Process of Grace. If you wanna take notes, you can. The Process of Grace, The Process of Grace. Let's ask God to bless his word this morning. God, speak to us in a profound way today. I pray that you would awaken our hearts. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, right now. Each of us coming in with different circumstances surrounding our lives, but you have a profound, unique, powerful way to speak to each of us individually. So I ask that you would do that now. We open our hearts to you, Lord Jesus. Anoint these words and let us each hear the word of God today. Amen. Amen. 1925, France was just recovering from a war, struggling financially, difficult time in the history of Europe, and uh, particularly in Paris, um, the cost of the Eiffel Tower was increasing and increasing and increasing. Originally, the Eiffel Tower, I didn't know this, uh, was not meant to be a permanent structure. And so by the time 1925 had rolled around, the Eiffel Tower was co costing Paris tons and tons and tons of money just to keep it up, just to keep it you know, uh, safe and good looking and not rusted and everything else. And so the local newspapers at that time ran a story about how much the Eiffel Tower was costing the city of Paris and how difficult it was to keep the costs paid for during this time after the war. And so uh, Victor Lustig read the report in the newspaper and had a brilliant idea. Victor Lustig was a con man. And so he forged some government documents and invited the six largest scrap metal companies to a high-ranking hotel in downtown Paris. At the hotel, once he got them all there, he pitched to them this con. He said that, uh, you know, he was hired by the government to find a way to scrap the Eiffel Tower, that they were going to tear it down and sell the metal to the highest bidder amongst the scrap metal dealers. And these six were selected because of their, you know, uh, experience and expertise in this area of scrap metal. And so he said, if you submit a bid, the highest bid will win and we will sell you the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. And so he actually rented a limousine, brought these guys all around the Eiffel Tower. I mean, it was an intricate plan. And at the end of the day, one guy submitted a high bid and he accepted the bid thousands upon thousands of dollars, and right after Victor Lustig was paid, he disappeared. The man realized that he had been conned and uh, never reported it to the police because he was so embarrassed that uh, he bought the Eiffel Tower. And um, Victor Lustig became known as one of the most famous con men in history. His nickname was the man who sold the Eiffel Tower. 
Wow, that's a good one, right? Genesis chapter 22, we hear the story of Abraham. We talked about this last week, how God makes a covenant with Abraham, an agreement with Abraham, and the agreement is based upon this foundation that grace will be the way God interacts with humanity, right? Now, Abraham has a son. He offers that son as a sacrifice. God stops him. The son's name was Isaac. Isaac grows up, marries a woman by the name of Rebekah, and Isaac and Rebekah have two sons. And some of you guys know this story. Stay with me as I unpack it today. For maybe those who haven't heard it, but even those who have heard the story, it's important for you to see it today in fresh uh, light with new eyes so that when we get to where we're going, it all makes sense, okay? So Isaac had two sons. His oldest son was named Esau, and Esau was, uh, got that name because, if anybody knows, Esau is a, is a hard word to translate, but it comes from the roots of the word red and hairy. So he was red and hairy. I know some of you had that kid. Sorry about that. You know, we try to say that our all children, you know, my wife, me and my wife have a differing opinion about this. She's like, no, Justin, all babies are beautiful. It's like, well, not all babies, <laughs> Some babies are red and hairy, you know, and if you were, if you had the hairy kid, you know, hairy butt, hairy back, hairy face, everything hairy, you know, there's nothing I can say. I'm sorry. Okay. Maybe it'll turn out all right in the end, but, but, uh, you know, you know, Esau was hairy. That was his deal. And so, um, he got the name, you know, Esau and then Jacob was, uh, the second son and his name came because as Esau was leaving the womb. Jacob somehow grabbed a hold of his brother's heel. And so they gave him the name Jacob, which means heel grabber, he who takes the heel, or in other words, he who cheats. Now, there's something intriguing in our world about the con man. I don't know if this resonates with you, but I really enjoy a good con movie. Do you not? I mean, like, my, I like action films generally if I'm going to watch a movie, and my wife likes, you know, romantic movies, and so the middle ground is let's find a movie where somebody's going to steal something, you know? It's a little bit of action, a little bit of romance that'll fit together, and so I don't know if you've ever seen Ocean's 11 or Ocean's 12 or Ocean's 13 or any of these other movies that deal with extensive cons, but, you know, as I watch them, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a thief by any means, but I'm watching them, and there's just something so endearing about these guys, isn't there? I mean, you're watching, you're like, oh, I should, I should totally steal money from a, from a, you know, from a casino someday. I mean, this seems so cool, you know, and, and, and there's something intriguing about this. We live in a world that we love the guy that can talk himself out of anything. We love the smooth operator, and the story of Jacob is one who is, he's a smooth operator. He knows the right thing to say at the right time, and it begins early for him, and it's all throughout his life. He is a cheater or a heel grabber, okay? One of the first instances of this is when he cons his older brother out of his birthright. Now, if you know much about Hebrew tradition, you know that the birthright gave the firstborn son a double portion of the father's inheritance from all the other kids, okay? So the oldest son gets twice as much. Everybody else gets the rest. And so the oldest son always gets double. Now, Esau, because he was born first, was the oldest son. And in a moment of weakness, Esau comes out of the woods after hunting. He is starving. He's tired. He's sweaty. And Jacob is making some nasty lentil soup. I don't know if you like lentil soup. I don't. And so for me, I'm thinking, I'm reading the story like lentils. It's not five guys, burgers and fries. It's lentil soup. But anyways, he's making some lentil soup. Esau's starving. He comes out of the woods and he says, give me some of your soup. And Jacob, the con man, sees an opportunity. He goes, you know what? I'll give you my soup if you give me your birthright. And Esau's, you know, rationale is I'm not even going to survive. I'm so starving. Fine. And so he eats 
and in five minutes he's done, and Jacob now has conned his brother. Inheritance that Esau had as the firstborn was the blessing of his father, and so the father would lay his hands upon the son and command the blessing over the firstborn so that he could carry on the family name for generations. This was particularly important for Abraham, Isaac, and Esau because this was a tradition that God had initiated this family. And so they believed that they would see the promise of Abraham fulfilled, that the children would be as the stars of the heaven, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Jacob sneaks into his father's tent when his dad is old and blind and a little bit senile and somehow tricks his dad into believing that he's Esau and his father gives him the blessing that Esau should have gotten. Now, when Esau gets home and finds out that Jacob swindled him out of his birthright and his blessing, he freaks out. And if you know the story, he wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob needs to flee. And he runs away and he runs across the desert. And as he's crossing the desert, he has his first real encounter with God. And God speaks to him in a profound way. And Jacob makes a deal with God. He says, you know what? I don't even know if you're real, but if you are, I will serve you all the days of my life. He ends up getting to his relative's house, Laban, far away from his father's house, And uh, Laban is a bit of a con man himself. And so Jacob, if you know the story, falls in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel. Laban also has an ugly duckly daughter, Leah, right? And so not trying to hate on her, it's just what the scripture is in the Bible, all right? And so um, what happens is, long story short, if you know the story, he decides, I'm going to work for you, Laban, for seven years. And if I work for you for seven years, you know, you're going to let me marry your smoking hot younger daughter, Rachel. We got a deal? And he says, deal. Now, the night of the wedding, Laban doesn't want his older daughter left with no husband. And so he switches places of the daughters. They're gowned from head to toe. He can't see who he's marrying, and he accidentally sleeps with the wrong sister. And so Jacob wakes up in the morning and goes, Oh, bleep, bleep, bleep. You know, he's, he's upset. And so he says, Laban, you swindled me. And so Laban says, well, work for me another seven years and you can marry my younger daughter as well. And so now Jacob has two wives. Somebody say too many, too many, right? He's got two wives now. And so he's got two wives and, uh, and he's in a circumstance where he now goes back and forth with Laban over the course of really years and years Total, Jacob's with Laban 20 years, back and forth where he swindles Laban and Laban swindles him and they're each trying to get the upper hand with their flocks and their herds. Eventually, Jacob does get the upper hand and his flocks and herds are flourishing and Laban's not so much. It's around this time that that Jacob has his second encounter with God. And in this encounter, God speaks to him and says, go back to the land of your father. I am going to bless you and do you good. Now, of course, this is a risk because, uh, you know, Esau's back there and Esau's still kind of ticked about the whole, you stole everything from me issue, you know? And so he decides in the night to secretly leave Laban and take his family and his herds and depart for his father's land. So as he's on the way, Laban figures out that Jacob left with his daughters and his herds, and he tracks them down, and they have this encounter in the middle of the wilderness. Y'all doing okay so far? I just covered like 16 chapters in the Old Testament. It's gonna be all right. I promise we're gonna get there. And so Jacob and Laban have this encounter, and uh, they decide, you know what? Um, Let's just decide to agree to disagree. Let's draw a line in the sand. That's your side, that's my side. Jacob says, I will not go back over onto your land. You will not come back over onto this land. And from now on, we will just live our own ways, our separate, go our separate ways, and that will be the deal. And so Laban says, done, I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna hunt you. Leave, and uh, we'll draw a line. I won't pass it, you won't pass it, all good. Jacob moves forward and continues to seek his father's homeland, and he sends ahead messengers to let his family know he's coming. 
And they come back and they say, Jake, we have some incredibly bad news. Um, that's the new living translation there. We have some, Jake, it's bad, it's bad for you. Um, Esau's on his way. He's got 400 men with him. And I don't think he's happy, happy, happy. So you're in trouble. You're, you're in trouble. And so now Jacob can't turn around. He's already made an agreement with Laban that he won't go back. And Jacob can't go ahead because Esau's coming and it's not looking good for him, right? And so for the first time in his life, Jacob is running out of options. He's running out of options. I don't know if you've experienced this in your own life, but it seems to me that stressful moments come after they've compounded with other stressful moments. You ever experienced that? It's not just one thing. It's usually 12 things that have gone wrong, right? It's not just, oh, the things with school aren't working out. It's the things with school aren't working out, and I'm having this health issue they keep having to look into, and they haven't figured anything out because the doctors just don't know. And then there's this relationship thing that that's really strong, and then my parents have got this issue going on. And then you find yourself in a moment like (sighs) starting to hyperventilate, not because of one thing, but because of 12 things, right? Well, this is similar to how Jacob's experiencing this moment where because of multiple issues at the same time, he's beginning to stress out. And so the first thing he tries to do is the first thing that many of us do in stressful moments. We try to protect those closest to us, all right? And so he comes up with this plan where he says, all right, family, divide in half. We're going to set up two camps. You go that way, you go this way. That way, if Esau comes and starts killing everybody, one camp can get away. But even that doesn't comfort Jacob. Have you ever confronted the reality that you can't protect those closest to you? It's ripe on the mind of my wife and myself because we are sending our children off to school. Public school. (laughs) And it's like, we're going to send our godly little angels? Anybody who works in kids knows that I just lied. (laughs) To public school? Like, yes. (gasps) You know, the other day, I was... um, my kids were playing in the backyard, ruled the Kendrick houses. Backyard, cool. Front yard, you need an adult, right? And so uh, he's, Gabe is in the backyard, and he's playing, and he runs out into the front yard. I'm like, hey, Gabe, 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 you can't be in the front yard without Dad. You got to stay in the back. Oh, okay, no problem, Dad. He runs back in the backyard, and then something else attracted him. Oh, butterfly. And he runs back into the front yard. And I'm like, Gabe, Gabe, come here, buddy. And he's like, yeah, oh. I'm like, you're in the front yard again. He's like, oh, yeah. I was like, if you go in the front yard, this is one of those parent moments, you know, where you say something that just doesn't even make any sense. I was like, if you go in the front yard again, you're not going outside for a week. And he was just like, all right, Dad, you're not going to do that. You know, it was like one of those moments. It was like, yeah, so just, just, just play. Just go play somewhere. You know, it's that, that moment. And I, I see in this story this moment where Jacob is kind of thrashing around, trying to protect those he loves. But you realize you can't. You can't. Hello, just hear me today. You can't keep your elderly mom safe. You can't keep your daughter safe. You can't protect your wife. You can't protect those closest to you permanently. You just can't. Now, there's certain things we should do. There's precautions. I understand all that. But the reality is you are not in control. And for a con man, this is very, very difficult to deal with. And for the rest of us, we each have this tendency to want to feel like we're in control of the circumstance. You came to church today to hear you're not. You're not. And so Jacob tries something else. He tries a bribe. He says, you know what? If my brother's ticked at me, maybe if I send him multiple gifts, he'll start liking me, right? So I'll send him 220 goats, and I'll instruct my, that's a good gift, right? Wouldn't you love if somebody dropped off 220 goats at your house? I'll, I'll instruct him that, you know, um, maybe he was sending the gifts to slow him down. I don't know the whole strategy, but he said, listen, let me send you 220 goats. And he instructed his, uh, his servants to say, oh, Master Esau, Lord Esau, your servant Jacob has sent you a gift. 
you know, trying to butter them up. And then 220 sheep after that. And then 30 camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 30 donkeys, you know, all these animals. So now it's like, you know, Noah's Ark coming in, all this different stuff in every type. And, and Esau, he's hoping, will get less and less angry with each gift, you know. And uh, it's difficult when you have to deal with the fact that you can't make everyone happy. You can just turn to somebody today and you can't, tell them you can't make everyone happy. Go ahead and just tell them. You can't, you can't make everyone happy. Some of us love making people happy, don't we? Oh, I just want to make, I just want to make, the, I just want to make my boss happy. I just want to appease. Did you ever realize that some of us view our relationship with God through that insecurity of needing to make everyone happy? If you know the story, you know that in the end, Esau's not even angry at Jacob. So he just gave away like a billion animals for nothing. I was thinking about that and I thought to myself, you know, isn't that what we do with God? We try to appease a God that's not even angry at us. We try to butter him up as if we could ever earn his favor that way, not realizing that he's already accepted us in Christ. So Jacob tries bribery. Jacob tries cutting the family in half and splitting them up to try to protect him. Jacob even tries a prayer. And it's actually the first prayer recorded in the Old Testament officially. And it's an interesting prayer, what he prays. I want to read it to you in Genesis 32, starting in verse 9. Jacob says this, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me, verse 11, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the, mother, uh, the mothers with the children. Verse 12, important. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So he reminds God of the promise and he cries out to God. Now, if you know the story, what happens next is important. Night falls, it's nighttime. And Jacob realizes that tomorrow morning, Esau will be at his doorstep and he'll have to deal with this and he may be slaughtered by his older brother who he's dodged for 20 years. Look what happens in verse 22. That same night he arose and took his two wives and two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. This is a river. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. I love that. Jacob was left alone. Here we see the unraveling of the con man. He's alone. His stuff is gone. There's no more cons to pull. His family is gone. And it's in this moment that one of the most profound and mysterious encounters with God occurs. Follow along with me in verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, there's a lot of details that are left out of that moment, this moment where Jacob has this mysterious encounter. So I'm going to just fill some of them in. I can't prove all these theologically, but I can sense and see this as I look at the scripture. So imagine with me for a moment you're Jacob, okay? Now, you might say, Justin, this has nothing to do with me. This is an ancient story. It's here because it has everything to do with you. So stay with this story. I promise God's going to speak to you in a profound way. Individually, each of us. And so Jacob finds himself alone, right? He's tried everything he can try. He's done everything he can do to try to earn his favor with God. And yet he finds himself now alone with no other options. It's dark outside. There's no street lights. There's no skyscrapers. It's actually dark. I know that we don't really know what that's like in our world, but it's actually, there's nothing. It's dark. He's all by himself. And in the middle of the wilderness, by himself, maybe sitting under a tree, he hears somebody splashing through the Jabbok River. Now, imagine the terror. 
I know that you get terrified when you hear a bird fly by your house at night sometimes. Imagine hearing a man splashing through the river in the middle of the nowhere wilderness, right? And so he hears this man splashing through the river, and I can imagine his first thought was, Esau, he's going to slaughter me right now. And as the man walks forward, he realizes it's not Esau, and something really strange happens. There's no communication between the two. They're just looking at each other under the moonlight. And now this secret, unknown individual steps forward and gets in the stance as if he wants to wrestle. Now, in Old Testament Hebrew culture, this idea of wrestling was something every Hebrew boy knew. They knew what it meant to wrestle, and so now he's like, what? You want to, who, what? He wants to wrestle? And so, of course, Jacob has no other choice but to engage in this contest, and so the two begin to wrestle, and they're throwing each other in the dirt, and they're smashing each other's face in the mud, and this doesn't go on for five minutes. The scripture says it happens all night. So literally all night, these two men are sweating and wrestling, and now that fear that Jacob felt, he begins to sense that it's a familiar fear. It's a fear that he's felt before. It's the same sense he had when he fell asleep on the way to Laban's house and had his first encounter with God. It's the same sense he had when he was told by God to leave and go back to his father's country. And he realizes in this moment, somewhere along the line, in the midst of this wrestling match, he realizes this person that I'm wrestling with is God. That's a terrifying reality. And so in a moment, the day breaks and God does something profound. He touches Jacob's hip. Now, if you know anything about the human anatomy, you know that touching a hip will not dislocate it. Go ahead and touch your hip. Did it dislocate? For not, not too many of us, it dislocated. But see, usually to get your hip to dis a motorcycle accident or a car, it's a big impact. And it is excruciatingly painful. I've never done it, but I looked it up online and they said it was painful. And so here's Jacob experiencing this absolute God, of course, who's God. Maybe it was in that moment that Jacob actually realized he was wrestling with the pre-incarnate Christ. And all of a sudden, God just touches his hip and says, bam, fight's over. And Jacob goes, ah! He, he's, his hip is dislocated and this man gets up to leave and it's in this moment that something changes forever in the heart of Jacob. And this is what I want to get at today. There's a change in his heart. See, he already divided his family to try to protect them. He already sent gifts ahead. But his last resort was the same one that he used last time to get away from Esau. I can always run. That's what I did last time. Worked. I can always just hightail out of here. If he, he can slaughter my slaves and steal my goats, but I can just run. And in this moment, as God takes away his last option, he realizes that with a dislocated hip, there's no way I could get away. I'm stuck here. And I believe that psychologically in this moment, Jacob realized that there's no con he can pull. There's nothing he can say to talk his way out of this, that he has no other option. And it's in this moment that he does something very uncommon. He grabs a hold of this God being who is God, pre-incarnate Jesus, that he grabs a hold of and he holds onto him tightly. And then he says something crazy. He says, I'm not gonna let you go as if he could hold on to God, right? I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me. See, many of us, don't miss this today, never prevail with God because our attitude is, God, I'm going to let you go until you bless me. Jacob's is, I am not going to let you go unless you bless me. And so he holds on to God and he says, no matter what, I'm not letting go. 
See, I believe Jacob became convinced of two things simultaneously. First, he became convinced of his own depravity. He realized that he's got no other option, that outside of God, there's no other option. But he also realized something else, that this God who was wrestling with him for hours at night was a God who actually had his best interest in mind. I believe that somewhere along the line, Jacob became so convinced of that reality that he said, you know what? If you truly have my best interest in mind, and that's the most important thing you can believe about God, by the way, that he's good. Jacob became convinced that God was good. And in this moment, he clung to God to such a degree that he said, I know you're good. I know your nature. I know you've revealed it to Abraham through the covenant of grace. I know you've revealed it to me by even keeping with me, even when I've been an idiot. I know that you've been patient with me, even in my rebellion. And now I'm not gonna let you go because I got no other option. You're all I've got and I won't let you go unless you bless me. Look at the next passage. It's critical that you get this today. God's talking to you. Verse 27. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. You know the story that in this moment, God changes his name. See, Jacob means deceiver. It means liar. It's who he was. And now he says, you're Israel. One translation of that is prince with God. Another translation is triumphant with God. My favorite translation of the word Israel is governed by God. He says, from now on, you're governed by God. That's your name. Look at verse 29, I love this. And Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, and I can't prove all this, but I just see this in my mind. He said, why is it that you ask my name? In other words, I could see Jesus before he ever took on human flesh, manifesting himself to Jacob in that moment and just looking down at him, smiling at him and be like, Jake, you already know who I am. I don't need to tell you anything. We've been talking for years. In my view, the most important phrase in this entire passage, the end of verse 29, and there he blessed him. That phrase kept playing in my mind as I studied this passage and thought about the history of grace. I thought about the journey we've been on so far and this process of grace that we've been talking about. And I asked myself, where's there? Don't miss this today. I asked myself, where's there? If it's there that he blessed him, where's there? And I felt the spirit of the Lord speak to me and I wanna just pass it on to you. I believe that there is the intersection of brokenness and confidence. I believe that there, the place of the blessing of God, is the intersection of brokenness and confidence. See, Jacob became deeply convinced that apart from you, God, I can do nothing. And he simultaneously became convinced that God, you are good and you desire my good. And when those two truths intersect, you find yourself at the place where you can experientially live in the grace and favor of God. You can write this down if you'd like. The blessing of, God, of grace is experienced through humble audacity. The blessing of grace is experienced. See, it's one thing to know grace up here, but it's a very different thing to experience the favor and the grace and the joy and the peace and the life of God in your actual world. Why don't I experience these things? I want them, but why don't I live them? You don't live them, friend, because all along God has been doing a work in your heart, a process of grace by which he is forming circumstances in such a way that he will humble you and Rip out of your hands every other thing you would rely on and at the same time encourage you trusting him that he's actually good. And it's at this intersection of brokenness and confidence, this humble audacity starts to rise up and the miracles of God become a reality in your life. 
See, in the New Testament, there's two times where Jesus is just blown away by people's faith. Two times. One time is in Matthew chapter 8 when a centurion comes to him and says, would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, sure, I'll come heal your servant. And then the centurion's word comes back and says, no, 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 don't even come to my house. I'm not worthy. What's that? Deep humility, brokenness. I'm not worthy. If you know the time period, you know that the centurions were Roman soldiers that were over the Jews. In fact, culturally, this centurion had all authority to do whatever he wanted to Jesus. But his response is humble. I don't deserve for you to come into my house. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus goes, what? You're crazy. I like that. I'm attracted to that humble audacity. Let it be done. Another time in Matthew chapter 15, there's a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus. And she says to him, Lord, would you heal my daughter? She's sick, possessed by a demon. She's attacked all the time. Would you heal my daughter? And Jesus gives one of the most terrifying responses. He goes, it's not in scripture, but that's how I read it. He goes, I'm not gonna give the children's bread to dogs. And she could have been like, are you calling me a dog? She could have been that way, right? I mean, most of us, what did you just, you're not the son of God. But instead we see in her this humble audacity. And instead she goes, yes, Lord, I'm a sinful Canaanite, wicked person. I'm not a follower of God, but even the dogs eat the crumbs off the master's table. And he goes, woman, your faith is great. You know, maybe you lack humility, and that's why you're not seeing the blessing of God manifest in your life. Maybe you're so confident in your own skill, your own intellect, your own strength, your own plan, that you've disqualified yourself from experiencing the fullness of God's blessing. Or maybe you lack audacity. You're humble, and you know you don't deserve it, but you don't have the courage to believe that God loves you that much. You don't have the courage to believe that God's that good that he would bless you and show you favor. I can tell you one thing, that your life is not about what God just does through you. See, what God's really interested in is what he's doing in you. Your life is really about him bringing you on a process of grace to strip away everything you'd rely on other than him and build you up in his promise so that he could get you to a place of final maturity where you're both completely unreliant upon yourself and fully dependent upon him, confident in his love for you. That's the place of humble audacity. That's the position of Jesus. And that's the place of the promise. I'm preaching myself happy up here. What's the process of grace? Matthew, or Hebrews chapter 11, let's look at it again. I started with this passage, I wanna end with it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, New Living Translation. Look at it again with me. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. That's pretty audacious, right? Jacob's this old dying man, but he says, you know what, even though I'm dying, I have full confidence that God has put in me the opportunity to bless my next generation. And so he blesses two generations. He blesses his son, Joseph, and his son, Joseph's sons. And so he audaciously commands the blessing. He's confident in his God. That's the audacity. But then look what the second half of the verse says. And bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. Now I'm studying that passage and I'm thinking to myself, why would the writer of Hebrews put in there he leaned on his staff? That's a random fact. And he bowed in worship as he itched his forehead. I mean, like, what's the point of putting in there he leaned on his staff? Maybe it's just a random fact. Maybe God, you know, just, just had him, just put that in there. Oh, by the way, he was leaning. No, maybe it's not a random fact. Maybe the writer of Hebrews put in the passage that 
Jacob was leaning on his staff because he wanted you and me to know that he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. That when God dislocated his hip, it caused Jacob to walk a little slower, to be a little more dependent. And for the rest of his life, Jacob was leaning on something. For the rest of his life, he wasn't so arrogant. He wasn't the con man's con man. He wasn't the smooth operator. He was just leaning on God. Don't worry about me right now. Don't worry about the communicator. I want you to listen to God right now. What's he doing inside of you? I can promise you that no matter where you are in your journey with God, right now, you are in the process of grace where he's either stripping you of your own self-confidence Say, Justin, nothing seems to be working. Everything, I lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. We, we felt like God told us to do this, but we don't have the money to do it. And we're scared. And we don't know what to do. And I'm, so, I'm stressing out. And I, I don't know if I'm supposed to go back to school or if I'm supposed to do this. Or I, I don't know if I'm supposed to change jobs or keep. I just don't know. I just don't know. I'm so scared. God, why, why don't you just tell me, God? And I think he's whispering to you because that's not my top priority. It's not whether you go here or go there. My top priority is to strip you of all self-trust and at the same time, build you up in my promise. I want you to be someone who is so humbly audacious that you can be both fully broken and fully confident. And when you're there, the experience of God's blessing and grace will flow consistently and freely. What's he doing inside of you right now? If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.